This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, residents near the big manganese mine on Groot Island push for government air quality studies after satellite monitoring sparks concerns about fine particles. Also, more flying objects are shot down over North America should Australians be concerned about spy aircraft. This clearly is one way that our adversaries are gathering useful intelligence on us, in addition to other traditional technical means such as spy satellites and aircraft and drones. You know, we do need to take this seriously. And beyond outbreaks and pandemics, could an Australian Centre for Disease Control help ease the burden of chronic disease as well? It's hard for governments to take action on prevention. There's a few reasons. One is that the gains happen in the future and the future beneficiaries of action on prevention, they're invisible. Thanks for your company. Community members from a remote island off Arnhem Land are calling on the NT government to investigate whether dust from one of the world's biggest manganese mines is threatening their health. Groot Island locals living near the mine have been worried for years about the black dust that accumulates on cars and buildings. Now they're raising concerns about the tiny dust particles they can't see amid multiple incidents of soaring air pollution readings. Jane Barden with this report. Sylvia Tuck's hair and nails were tested by University of Queensland researchers a few years ago at her home on Groot Island. She was worried to hear the tests had found concerning high levels of heavy metals. I found that out through the news and by reading and I was quite shocked to see the results. She used to work at the South 32 Gemco Manganese mine near her home community of Anuragu. Now she's moved to Darwin, but she's worried about family still living beside the mine. When you actually fly over the island and when you look at your community, all you can see is just black dust on the roofs. I went to clean my mother's house and the dust is so thick, you have to do it every three weeks. People are using gurneys to clean their house. Like they're saying that they do monitor the dust and they have um, equipment in community to see how much dust is coming in. But we don't get told the results. Where does that information go? What would you like the government and regulators to do in relation to this dust problem? Well, I'd like to know um, the effects of it. We're worried about our future children, you know. Um, So we'd like them to do more testing and what positive programs they can put in place to stop this dust. The health department says it hasn't investigated the issue since ABC reporting revealed high levels of metals found in samples from community members. The mining company South32 says it's helped to seal roads, changed mining schedules and it's using watering trucks to reduce dust. But other Groot Island community members are now asking new questions about whether particles too small to see are putting the community at risk. They're referred to as PM 2.5, very fine inhalable particles, 2.5 micrometres and smaller. In comparison, the average human hair is about 70 micrometres in diameter. If we look at this slide, it's showing that there's a plume of dust and you can see it's showing at that spot 113 micrograms per cubic metre. 
David Nathan worked as a linguist on the island for several years until last year. Since 2020, he's been monitoring PM 2.5 levels via a weather forecasting and air quality website called Windy. Having lived in Japan for a while, I was quite aware of some of the air pollution issues that they faced there. And I, and I was surprised one day looking at windy.com that there were these very strong plumes of this PM 2.5 emanating from Groot. The Australian safety standard limit for PM 2.5 is 25 micrograms. Mr Nathan showed the ABC PM 2.5 readings from January, February, March, September and October 2020 of between 94 and 273 micrograms and between 56 and 75 in December 2022. He's questioning whether there could be fine dust coming from the South 32 sheds in the community. What we actually observed was these pyramids of fine material in this shed uh, being turned over by uh, machines, perhaps to dry them out, and then gradually disappearing again over quite a short period. That may be the source of fines, for example, being blown off conveyor belt. How do you hope um, government authorities respond to this when they get to hear about it? I think it would be good if the suitably qualified uh, medical or environmental science people could liaise with the source of those images, the maps, and to establish the credibility of uh, the claims about the massive unsafe levels. The Windy website shows data produced by the European Union's Copernicus Atmospheric Monitoring Service. Copernicus is used by the World Health Organisation to assess air quality-related death rates and the Australian government uses it to monitor ozone holes. The director of the Copernicus service, Dr Vincent-Henri Perk, says it reports data from governments and its satellite network. In areas like the NT, where they aren't provided with monitoring data from the ground, there is a margin for error and it can't tell exactly what the PM 2.5 material is. Although bushfire-caused pollution can be differentiated by also monitoring for heat plumes. So it, it's a very difficult challenge uh, because in some parts of the world we have access to surface observation in, in real time. That's the case for parts of Australia and near, near big cities. Uh, but uh, in, in the specific case of the Northern Territory, unfortunately, uh, I don't think we have uh, ground-based observations. The ABC sent the high PM 2.5 readings from 2020 and 2022 to South 32 and asked it whether its monitoring had found different readings or other causes. It didn't dispute the readings or provide its own data. It said it had some PM 2.5 and PM 10 fine dust exceedances from its operation before July 2022 and none since, and it has, quote, worked hard to prevent further occurrences. The NT's industry department told the ABC no PM 2.5 exceedances had been reported to it in the last three years. The ABC consulted three PM 2.5 experts from different universities, who all said readings this high, if correct, would be a concern. 
Claire Murphy, a professor of atmospheric chemistry from the University of Wollongong, says she's used satellite services like Copernicus and they do have a margin for error. The levels that you have shown me in these maps are actually quite worrying. Is it a level that would warrant some investigation by the NT government? Yeah, absolutely. So this satellite measure, it's uncertain in that when you look at that number and it says 165, it's not necessarily 165, but what you can see is it's really large. That's worrying. And so absolutely to me, the absolute correct response to this is to get something on the ground to try and understand what's happening so it can be rectified. That's Professor Claire Murphy from the University of Wollongong talking to our reporter Jane Barden. In the week since a suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down, a series of mysterious flying objects have alarmed US and Canadian officials. It's still not clear what these objects are or who's behind them. Officials describe the latest, shot down over Lake Huron in Canada, as an octagonal object, and they're not ruling anything in or out. Isabel Masali reports. A suspected spy balloon and now three more unidentified objects have been shot down by the US military over North America. The Air Force General overseeing the North American airspace, Glenn Van Herc, was imprecise when asked to explain exactly what they saw. Well, I'm not going to categorize them as balloons. We're calling them objects for a reason. I am not able to categorize how they stay aloft. I would be hesitant to, and urge you not to... Uh, attributed to any specific country. We don't know. That's why it's so critical to get our hands on these so that we can further assess and analyse what they are. Dr Malcolm Davis is a senior analyst in defence strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He says the first case was clearly a spy balloon, but these other objects are more intriguing. They're smaller, a different shape, and operating at a lower altitude, which poses a threat to civilian aircraft. And we may hear more about these cases. Dr Davis understands the North American Air Defence Command has adjusted its technology to better detect slow-moving objects. I think on the broader scale of things, uh, what you are seeing now is a recognition that the US airspace is being regularly probed uh, by foreign adversaries to gather intelligence. And the US having uh, adjusted some of its air defence systems to detect these threats is now being far more proactive. In Australia, the head of ASIO, Mike Burgess, has brushed off concerns about threats here, telling Senate estimates... I don't comment on operational matters. Of course, I'm aware of the reporting around balloons and balloons allegedly being used for uh, spying. Um, In my experience, that's not the principle by means which by people are spying on this country. Mm. But Dr Davis believes it's quite possible Australia could see similar incidents of unidentified aerial phenomena, or UAP. He warns there are a number of sensitive military sites which could be targets, but we also have equipment to detect such objects. I think they should be concerned. Uh, This clearly is one way that our adversaries are gathering useful intelligence on us, in addition to other traditional uh, technical means such as spy satellites and and aircraft and drones. Uh, We do need to take the UAP issue seriously and uh, respond with a formal investigation and analysis of what these things are, rather than just dismiss them out of hand. Uh, And I do think that we need to have the measures in place and the capability in place 
to identify, inspect, and if necessary, intercept and shoot down these these platforms. Beyond the topic of balloons and any other concerning flying objects, Australia's domestic spy boss said espionage and foreign interference has supplanted terrorism as their principal security concerns. And while he couldn't go into detail, he said ASIO has been productive in this space. Sarah Kendall is an academic at the University of Queensland and researches emerging national security threats. She warns espionage has been increasing in recent years and the public can be caught up too. So we know that foreign intelligence agents are using social media sites like LinkedIn and even sites like Tinder to get in touch with or or make contact with Australians, uh, develop a relationship and try and gather that information. So it's very important that Australians are aware of what this threat might look like so that they can avoid inadvertently handing over information that might be useful to a foreign actor. That's University of Queensland academic Sarah Kendall, Isabel Masali reporting. It's been a week since two powerful earthquakes struck Turkey and Syria, and the situation on the ground remains dire. Amid warnings of a second humanitarian disaster impacting survivors camped out in the cold, there are also reports of looting in Turkey. While in Syria, already ravaged by 12 years of civil war, survivors of the quake say they feel abandoned because only a fraction of the help they need has arrived. Oka Bauman is from Save the Children in Turkey. He joined us from Gaziantep near the border with Syria. We've seen a lot of images uh, of the destruction and, and generally just the emergency situation here in Turkey where I am. But I don't think we've quite seen the full impact, the full scale of what's happening in Syria. When we're talking to uh, our partner organizations, the people uh, we work with there on the grounds, um, we're getting very alarming reports about the situation, um, the lack of you know, basic items, uh, people struggling to find shelter, uh, to find uh, a way to keep warm, to find food, and just the general levels of destruction are, are really striking. It has to be a huge focus for us going forward to make sure that we, we get assistance to, to, to the children and families in Northwest Syria that we have to remember we're already living in a conflict zone and this is now an additional disaster that, that has struck them. How much aid from your organisation and others has been able to get through to the people in need? The good news is that aid is is going through. The less good news is that it's just not nearly enough yet. So we, we urgently need to scale it up. What we've been doing uh, mostly because we, we work through local organisations in northwest Syria is uh, they've been distributing what they already had available before the earthquake and and trying to get that out the door to the people who need it most as quickly as possible. What we're seeing now is that some of the stocks of key items on the markets uh, are starting to become depleted. So things like tents, blankets uh, are just very hard to come by. And that speaks to the need to actually start replenishing the markets and also to bring in a much bigger amount of humanitarian supplies, uh, probably through the border with Turkey. So I think that has to be a key priority to, to scale that up, not just for the UN convoys, which have been going through again since the earthquake, 
but also commercial access and access for uh, for NGOs to to just get their shipments across as as quickly as possible. Specifically for children, orphans really in both Syria and Turkey. Can you describe the the risks that they in particular face from disease, but also trafficking? Yeah, I think what we've we've heard from talking to children that are, for instance, in temporary shelters in in northwest Syria, um, I mean, in the first instance, harrowing accounts of how they lived through the earthquake. For instance, a six-year-old girl that told us how the house collapsed uh, on top of her and her family and her father who pulled her out of the rubble. Uh, but unfortunately, she lost her, her two siblings. Um, so these children are in a very vulnerable situation right now. The first priority, and that has been I think our priority and many other organizations and people that are trying to help is just to make sure that they have a temporary shelter. But we are also getting reports, um, and that's what you were referring to as well, of children that have been um, either separated from their families or maybe lost um, their their families or at least their, their caretakers, their parents. For those children, going forward, we also need to work quite hard to set up the systems so that we can start doing what, what's called family tracing and reunification uh, as soon as possible to identify, you know, where are these children from? Are there still close relatives, family members that could look after them? And just in general, make sure there's a good process to determine what's in the best interest of each specific individual child. Mm. Uh, and that's going to have to be um, a huge focus going forward. Oki Bauman, thank you so much. A big task ahead for you and all the others. Thank you very much. And Oki Bauman is from Save the Children. He was speaking to us from Gaziantep in Turkey. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, the plan to block cyber criminals from sending official-looking text messages that are fleecing Australians of millions of dollars. Will it work? It was the fact that it looked like a legitimate message from the bank and I've ended up losing close to $25,000. I went into kind of a state of panic afterwards. The Prime Minister has used the 15th anniversary of Federal Parliament's apology to the stolen generations to push for better outcomes for Indigenous people and renew his call for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The government released its Closing the Gap Implementation Plan, which allocates more than $400 million to address Indigenous disadvantage. And on this day of apology, opposition leader Peter Dutton has made another this time for boycotting the national apology 15 years ago. Rachel Mealy reports. Then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd made the apology to the stolen generations 15 years ago. At the time, Anthony Albanese was sitting on the front bench right behind him. The apology was the first act on the first parliamentary sitting day of the Rudd Labor government. As leader of the House on that day, it was certainly my proudest moment in this chamber. This anniversary comes as the nation prepares to vote on a referendum to enshrine an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Anthony Albanese says, like the apology, a voice could take the nation further towards improved outcomes for First Nations people. It's easy to say the apology didn't fix everything. That's true, it didn't. But what single thing can? What moment can? There is no step that can on its own get us to our destination. But we keep taking steps and we keep walking. 
The Prime Minister says there's been a failure of successive governments to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians in key markers like health, education and life expectancy. The government used today's anniversary to launch a Closing the Gap implementation plan with more than $400 million to address Indigenous disadvantage. Anthony Albanese says the most recent Closing the Gap report was a national shame. These aren't gaps, they're chasms. It is clear that not enough support has been directed towards organisations to deliver for communities. It is clear that we have leapt too swiftly from a climate of forceful intervention to simply telling communities you're on your own. Opposition leader Peter Dutton says the recent crime wave and social unrest in Alice Springs underlines the failures. I fear we are failing again this very day, for which a future apology will be necessary. Ironically, the situation in Alice Springs has highlighted children suffering in a harmful situation which is suffocating their chances of breaking a vicious cycle. On the day Kevin Rudd apologised to the Stolen Generations in 2008, Peter Dutton boycotted the sitting of Parliament. He now says he was wrong. I failed to grasp at the time the symbolic significance to the Stolen Generation of the apology. It was right for Prime Minister Rudd to make the apology in 2008. It's right that we recognise the anniversary today. It's right that the government continues its efforts and in whatever way possible, we support that bipartisan effort. The Minister for Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, says she accepts Peter Dutton's apology. For some, the apology was, was something to reject. And of course, we all learn and we all grow. I thank the Leader of the Opposition for his apology today. The National Party has already decided not to support an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So far, the Liberal Party hasn't declared which side of the debate it'll support. Linda Burney says Mr Dutton and his party have a chance to make things right. But now we have the chance to do something practical together, to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians, something that will have an impact on the ground and in communities. So I say, don't hold us back. Let's move forward for everyone. That's Linda Burney, the Minister for Indigenous Australians, ending that report from Rachel Mealy. Almost half of all Australians live with a chronic disease and 90% of all deaths in this country are because of these mostly preventable illnesses. Well, a new report from the Grattan Institute is urging the soon-to-be-established Australian Centre for Disease Control to tackle chronic diseases, hoping it'll help overcome short-term thinking and the influence of powerful vested interests. Catherine Gregory reports. As doctors, nurses and political leaders grapple with how to fix the healthcare system, a hidden health crisis is emerging, the alarmingly high rates of chronic disease. Conditions such as diabetes, heart disease, cancers and lung disease are the biggest killers in Australia and little is being done about it, according to researchers from think tank the Grattan Institute. It's hard for governments to take action on prevention. Peter Braden is the director of the health program there. There's a few reasons. One is that the gains happen in the future and the future beneficiaries of action on prevention, uh, they're invisible. And also there are powerful uh, industries 
that will lobby against government action that might reduce their profits. Mr Braden is referring to the alcohol, tobacco, fast food and sugar industries, which the report finds still has too much influence on political decision makers. That's why he's calling for an independent body to take charge, such as the Australian Centre for Disease Control, which the Albanese federal government promised to establish before it won the last election. We think its core role should be to be that source of expert independent advice that says what will work, and that's in the form of programs and services, but also regulations, and that that advice should be public. Mr Braden says almost two-thirds of Australian adults are overweight and obese, and it's the biggest risk factor for most chronic diseases. 65-year-old Louise Henshaw falls into that category. She has type 2 diabetes. I've been working on exercise like mad, and that helps to lower blood glucose but you cannot outrun your diet. The Sydney teacher says while most Australians should be aware of what being overweight does to your health, it's still not that simple. It's made hard in terms of purchasing food at the supermarket because you don't know, they put in hidden sugars. And I think each individual in Australia has to be responsible for what they put in their mouths. It's You can't blame everything on the government. But I do think the government can bring in rules and regulations that help the food industry, to be more honest. The Grattan Institute recommends the new CDC oversee policies that improve Australia's regulations of high salt and sugar-based foods. But the report says the CDC will need increased government investment. Currently, Australia spends less than the OECD average on chronic disease prevention. It will be a challenge, though, given money is also needed to fix our overcrowded hospitals and the crisis in primary health care. Adjunct Professor Terry Slevin is the Executive Officer of the Public Health Association. It's always been the dynamic. There's always been the crisis of dealing with how big the ambulance is at the bottom of the cliff. That's only going to get worse if we don't invest in the prevention for the future. And that's what the CDC creates the opportunity for us to do. The Grattan Institute says the CDC will need to work with Australia's culturally diverse and lower socioeconomic communities. Dr Elizabeth Devaney is the CEO of the Consumers Health Forum. Health consumers talk a lot about affordability in relation to healthcare. And one of the things they often say is while their specialist, their GP, will recommend, for example, that they uh, eat differently, uh, you know, join the gym, they simply can't afford it. So recommendations need to consider what many Australians can actually do in terms of improving their health. The Federal Health Minister, Mark Butler, says the new CDC will focus on pandemic preparedness, future infectious disease outbreaks, as well as preventing chronic disease. Catherine Gregory reporting. We've all received them, official-looking text messages attempting to lure us into clicking on dodgy links or handing over sensitive personal information. For many, spelling errors and poor grammar can be the giveaway that it's not really from your bank, the government or your service provider. But the fakes are getting harder and harder to tell from the real thing with a new ID register to be set up in a bid to stop the fraudsters, as Nick Grimm reports. Melbourne woman Jude's nightmare began simply enough, with that familiar ping alerting her to an incoming message on her phone. It was the fact that it looked like a legitimate message from the bank and I've ended up losing close to $25,000 
I went into kind of a state of panic afterwards. Um, For about 24 hours, I felt like I was having a panic attack. But speaking out about how she was scammed has led the marketing executive to speak to many others who've also fallen victim to online criminals. And she warns, don't assume you'll be able to spot the fake messages. And it's not just happening to people's grannies and so-called vulnerable people in the community All of the people I've spoken to have been young, educated, savvy people. In fact, I spoke to one person who actually works in cybersecurity and they had lost $40,000 from this sort of scam. So it's incredibly pervasive at the moment. In Jude's case, she fell victim to what's known as ID spoofing, where the scammers send messages that appear within the same message thread as earlier legitimate communications from a bank, government agency or other well-known organisations like utility providers. We want to knock this on the head by having a registry which enables us to match all the legitimate names to the legitimate numbers of businesses and basically disrupt the fraudster's business model. Assistant Treasurer and Minister for Financial Services Stephen Jones says the federal government will ask the Australian Communications and Media Authority to establish the register. We know that over $2 billion worth of money has been lost in the last year. So if we can filter that out, that'll go a long way towards removing the risks and the passage that scammers have to unsuspecting victims. But can authorities get the upper hand on the cyber criminals? Andrew Williams is the CEO of the Australian Communications Consumer Action Network. They are getting more and more sophisticated, and uh, you know, particularly with uh, you know, Australia Post, MyGov, for example, and they do look very legitimate. Are you confident that this is going to be able to stamp it out? I don't think we'll ever stamp out scams. Uh, it is, you know, we use the phrase a lot, but it's just like whack-a-mole. You knock one on the head and another couple pop up. But it is going to really force the scammers to rethink and change their approach. For scam victim Jude, though, the best defence is to question everything. I think being incredibly vigilant, trusting nothing, I think, is the only way to go. And if you have any doubt, hang up, call the main number, and I think just to share information and and be putting pressure on your bank and telco to do better at warning their customers of these specific risks. Trusting nothing. That's SMS scam victim Jude, Nick Grimm, with that report. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. For renters, it feels like one of the hardest times in history with rising costs and limited availability. So can anything be done to ease the pressure? Today, housing economist Cameron Murray on whether we're overlooking a simple fix. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.